spend some time with us this afternoon. So please welcome uh, Ellen Chadwick. Uh, so welcome. Uh, welcome back from lunch. Glad you're back. And uh, hope you'll be interested in hearing a little bit about pediatrics. Uh, I have personally no relevant financial disclosures. Uh, my husband is a former AbbVie employee and uh, received stock options when he was working there. What I'd like to cover today is to look at the uh, current approaches to prevention of perinatal transmission of HIV, to characterize the challenges of treating perinatally infected infants aging into adolescence, and then discuss some of the barriers to treatment and retention of infected adolescents as they transition to adult care. So let me start out by asking how many pediatricians are in the audience? Ooh, there are some. Yay. Hi, Anne. Um, so I'm... <laughs> Yay. That's right. Round of applause. Uh, so, so what I'm going to try to do today is talk a little bit about some of the things that I think are important for adult care providers to know. And uh, the first thing, I have to acknowledge the fact that the vast majority of children living with HIV live in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, followed by Asia and Latin America, and that we in North America and Europe occupy really the minority of cases. But I think there's still a lot to be learned from uh, our own experience, and the fact that we all practice in a uh, higher income area, I'm going to be limiting my comments today to uh, our experience. So what I'd like to try to bring you up to date on is the status of prevention of perinatal transmission in 2016 and tell you a little bit about how those children that are born with HIV infection are doing, uh, what our current treatment recommendations are, and the fact that they are surviving but uh, also cover some of their long-term complications. And then finally, finish up with adolescents with HIV infection, uh, contrasting perinatally and behaviorally infected teens, and some ideas for how to make a smooth transition to adult care. So this is one of my favorite slides. You've all seen this, I'm sure. AIDS classification among perinatally infected persons uh, from 85 to 2011. And our peak was in the early 90s, before 076, when we started treating mothers. And since that time, we've had more than a 95% reduction in transmission. So this is really, really probably the best news I'm going to tell you all day. Um, we now have about, we, we estimate that we have less than 1% transmission among women who are treated during uh, pregnancy. And our guidelines for prophylaxis of this population of infants born to HIV-positive mothers who have been suppressed during pregnancy is very straightforward. Four to six weeks of zidovudine works well, and we have you know, virtually no infections. We have an estimated uh, about 100 HIV-infected infants born in the U.S. each year. And the majority of these infants are born to women who have not received prenatal care and or art. So we really need to know what to do with these women. And we have data from HPTN 040, which uh, is a multi-center trial that was focused primarily in South Africa, excuse me, South America. And uh, these are infants whose mothers were either diagnosed in labor or uh, hadn't sought care during their pregnancy. And when the infants were born, they were randomized to receive either standard of care ZDV uh, for six weeks, ZDV plus three doses of nevirapine, or ZDV plus nelfinavir and 3TC. 
And overall, 8% of this whole population became HIV infected. About 6% had in utero transmission, so they were born already infected. But then there was a 3.2% intrapartum transmission. And what you see on this, um, on this graph is that the Zydovudine alone arm uh, had twice as many transmissions as did either of the two more complicated arms. And because the three-drug arm, three arm had a few more complications than did the two-drug arm, uh, the current U.S. guidelines for prophylaxis of these high-risk infants is ZDV for six weeks, plus three doses of nevirapine given at birth, 48 hours, and 96 hours after the last dose. So we do know how to handle the high-risk infants and, and do pretty well at preventing transmission. But what about those infants that are infected in utero? And we're trying to learn from the experience of the Mississippi baby how best to approach these children. I, how many people have heard about the Mississippi baby? Most everybody, good. So just to remind you, this is a, a, a baby that was born in rural Mississippi to a mother who had not received treatment during pregnancy. Uh, she had a very astute clinician who got a DNA PCR at birth and uh, it was back within 30 hours of age, and so this uh, clinician decided to, whoops, excuse me, sorry. Um, the clinician decided to institute three-drug treatment of this infant at 31 hours of age. And the baby's viral load came down to undetected within 10 days of life, and this went all pretty nicely until the baby was about 18 months when the uh, mother disappeared and stopped giving the baby any treatment. And when, when the mom resurfaced at 24 months of age, there was no detectable virus, even down to one copy per ml. And we actually thought we had a cure, uh, which was very exciting, but uh, at 27 months of, of no therapy, there was an asymptomatic virologic uh, rebound. And so what we assume is that this baby had very limited reservoirs as a result of their very early treatment, and we're hoping to see if we can replicate this experience with IMPACT P1115 study. IMPACT is basically the pediatric ACTG. This is a proof-of-concept study uh, in which we're using combination therapy within 48 hours of birth uh, trying to achieve remission, and this is currently enrolling in 48 sites and in 13 countries. We do know that treating early is better in children, just as it is in adults, and we have quite a bit of data to substantiate this. Uh, this is the European Infant Collaboration Group, which enrolled uh, infants who did not have an AIDS diagnosis by three months of age, and then looked at how well they did, whether they had um, started ART, this is a retrospective study, ART, um, before three months or ART after three months of age, and at a year of age, the infants that started later had a 12% incidence of either AIDS or death versus only a almost 2% incidence in the babies that started earlier. And then you're all very familiar, I'm sure, with the SHARE trial out of South Africa where infants were randomized uh, within 12 weeks of age to immediate treatment or deferred treatment uh, based on CD4 count or clinical progression. And you see here that this uh, population was started at a mean of seven weeks of age, and uh, early treatment decreased uh, death or CDC event, uh, stage three event, 
uh, by 75%. So we do know that treating early is good for babies. Um, and we have currently updated our uh, DHHS guidelines so that we are now are, uh, recommending treatment for all HIV-infected children, regardless of symptoms, viral load, or CD4 count. Uh, this is based on data from PenPact-1, which is a collaborative U.S.-European trial, and we've extrapolated downward from the Adult START trial. However, the strength of the recommendation for asymptomatic children will vary by CD4 count and age. We recommend that there is urgent treatment of infants under 12 months of age, and this is based on the shared data, and we have very very good data to support this. But in older children that are completely asymptomatic with a CD4 count that is good, you have a little bit more time before you rush into treatment. And in particular, we have to remember that children uh, rely entirely on their adult caregivers to receive their treatment. And so we really want to make sure that they're going to be adherent and that the, the adult caregivers are going to be uh, very reliable in giving their medication. So let's start with um, my only question in the, in the batch here. A two-month-old infant who was born at home, uh, mother untreated during pregnancy, presents with oral thrush and diarrhea. HIV RNA is 942,000 um, copies, 942,000 copies, and CD4 count of 975, which may sound pretty good to an adult provider, but this is in severe immunosuppression range for children. So the options, uh, in addition to starting ZDV and 3TC, which of the following would you initiate to build a, a combination regimen? Nevirapine, boosted atazanavir, uh, Kaletra, raltegravir, or dolutegravir? Okay, and please vote. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never Okay, so uh, this is a very informed crowd. The largest percentage got the right answer, which is Kaletra, but I don't um, argue with several of the other options that are on the slide here. Uh, Nevirapine is actually used widely in uh, some of the low-resource countries, but it's been shown to be inferior to lopinavir ritonavir, so we don't use that as first-line therapy, but it is an option. Atazanavir, we don't have any data for babies this young. Uh, raltegravir is something that is emerging, but again, we don't have experience with using raltegravir in young babies, and we have absolutely no PK data for dolutegravir in babies. So this is uh, from the new DHHS guidelines on how to start treatment for ARV-naive children. Now this is a maze, as uh, you can see, and this is not for anybody to retain this information, but just to show you how complex this is, and uh, we are so limited by, in particular, availability of liquid formulations or PK data by age. So you'll notice that there's nothing recommended under 14 days of age because we don't, this is, this is highly active therapy, by the way, not the NRTIs. Uh, we don't have data under 14 days of age, so that really uh, creates a vacuum. Um, and then uh, lopinavir ritonavir is the one that we have the most experience with for young infants. Uh, Nevirapine is an, an alternative uh, option. And then we keep picking up drugs as, as the age goes up. Three years is when we pick up efavirenz um, 
and atazanavir, and it goes on and on. And, and as I said, not to remember, but just to show you that this is a, a, a moving target depending on age, tolerability, and formulation. And we do know these drugs work. Uh, this is uh, longitudinal data from 3,500 children followed in, again, the, the pediatric ACTG study. And what you see here is that in uh, 1994, the death rate was 7.2 per 100 patient years. And after the heart era, the death rate dropped to 0.6. So this was really very exciting data. But at the time this was published, the death rate was still estimated to be more than 30 times greater than the general pediatric population. The reason that we uh, see uh, such improvement in mortality, of course, is that we see fewer opportunistic infections and organ-specific uh, diseases in, in, in infected children. This is a multi-center study out of Madrid that looked at uh, a variety of issues in three different time periods. Um, and you see over uh, the first time period, which is before heart, minority heart, and majority taking heart, you see a progressive decrease in mortality, infections, and organ-specific diseases. So these kids are aging up. And these are data from the combined uh, UK-Irish cohorts between 1996 and 2014. And what you see is that in 1996, over half of the children were under four years of age. And as time has gone on, we now see that over half of the children are over 15 years of age, with about 25% of them over 20 years of age. So these kids are aging up, and uh, we have to keep, keep abreast of how they are changing um, as they age up. This is the UK portion of that population, and what you see is that in spite of the fact that the kids are surviving and doing better, they are not problem-free, and uh, by the time they hit 15 years, many of them have had uh, significant disease. And more importantly, uh, they, have, they are very antiretroviral drug experienced. So you see that by 15 years of age, uh, more than 50% have had over five drugs, and a third have had over eight drugs. So these are kids that have had multiple different drugs, and uh, that really limits our options for treatment going forward. Again, uh, as in adults, we worry about metabolic complications in our perinatally infected children, and this was a study that combined nine U.S. and international sites looking at a variety of different metabolic uh, complications, and what you see in this paper is that clinical lipodystrophy, depending on the study, ranged between 10 and 42 percent, uh, hypercholesterolemia up to 68 percent, hypertriglyceridemia up to 52 percent, insulin resistance uh, in a little over a third, and a small minority that has an abnormal glucose tolerance test. So these are not insignificant metabolic issues that we have to take, or we have to take into account. Another thing that we worry about with our uh, young children is whether they're going to have premature cardiovascular disease. Just 
like the adult population. And this is a very interesting study that looked at the pathobiologic determinant of atherosclerosis in youth, or P-Day, risk score. And this is a validated model looking at autopsy data from over 1,100 individuals between 11 years of age and uh, 29 years of age. And they looked at the uh, risk of coronary, whoops, excuse me, coronary uh, or aortic atherosclerosis from these autopsy data relative and did a uh, matched controlling without cardiovascular risk. And they give points for modifiable risks, such as non-HDL cholesterol, HDL, smoking, blood pressure, BMI, and glycemia. And then the score for each of these modifiable risks is uh, summed to calculate the P-Day score. So for example, for non-HDL cholesterol, if it's low, there are no points given, but if it's very high, you have eight points given for coronary and four points given for abdominal aortic um, atherosclerosis. And uh, the reverse of that is HDL cholesterol. If it is very high, so protective, you get to subtract a point. And a risk score greater than one indicates at least an 18% or 29% risk uh, or increased odds of a current atherosclerotic um, lesion. So this P-Day score was applied to 165 adolescents uh, studied in the pediatric HIV AIDS cohort study or the FACS cohort study. And they calculated a coronary or an aortic P-Day score at each yearly visit when the child hit 15 years of age. And what they found is that 48% uh, had at least uh, a P-Day score of over one, and 24% had an aortic P-Day score greater than one, and that HIV disease severity, be that clinical or unsuppressed viral load, and boosted PIs significantly predicted higher scores. So what we don't know is whether um, this is going to identify a population at risk for premature cardiovascular disease in the pediatric population, and whether we should consider switching ARVs to drugs that are less likely to cause metabolic abnormalities. Some of the other issues that we have to deal with with the perinatally infected uh, children are mental health challenges. Um, this is the IMPACT P1055 study. This was a prospective observational trial of psychiatric symptoms in children between 6 and 17 years of age. And uh, they looked at a population of infected children and uninfected children that were either perinatally exposed or lived in an HIV-positive household. And disturbingly, what we found is that 60% of the infected children had any problem at all, including uh, attention deficit disorder, aggression, including oppositional defiant disorder or a conduct disorder, a major mood disorder, and a distressingly high uh, incidence of anxiety. Uh, and what you see here is that there is no difference between the infected and the uninfected infants. Um, not infants, children, sorry. Um, so what this tells us, it's not just HIV. It's the in environment that the children live in, uh, sometimes the socio-demographics uh, of the, the family that contribute to significant mental health issues that have to be dealt with in the pediatric uh, HIV population. 
and our children are sexually active. Uh, this is a study from the FACTS cohort again, and they found that in a group of uh, youth 10 to 18 years of age, 28% were sexually active, and disturbingly, 60% reported unprotected sex, and only a third had disclosed their HIV status to their partners. Uh, and when they did a sub-analysis of those that were sexually active, uh, they found that 40% had unsuppressed viral load. And when they looked at that population that had an unsuppressed viral load, they found a fair amount of drug resistance with up to 20% that had at least one drug resistant in all three classes that were um, available at the time. So this is a concern that we have uh, and work very hard at with our perinatally infected youth. So to summarize, some of the issues that have to be dealt with with the perinatally infected youth and that you as adult providers should be prepared for uh, and greet with enthusiasm are some of the things that uh, we are most happy about, which is that the, these kids are surviving and they have to be resilient to have survived this long with this challenging disease. But there are significant remaining illnesses. Um, this is a highly treatment experienced population. You will have fewer treatment options than you will with your newly infected adults. Uh, a good proportion of them have metabolic complications that need to be dealt with. Many of them have mental health challenges. These are kids that tend to be, um, have significant uh, adherence issues, treatment fatigue. Some of them can't stand the sight of uh, a capsule of, of medication and literally can't take any medication. Um, and they've lived with a chronic illness their whole life. So there's lots of mental health challenges that have to be dealt with. And then we try to encourage a safe and responsible sexual debut. Moving on to the behaviorally infected youth, uh, it's important to remember that normal adolescent development includes seeking autonomy, peer pressure, and slow maturation of impulse control. These brains don't harden up until they're basically 25, in particular in boys. And these issues lead to risk-taking behaviors, no surprise, unprotected sex and substance use. Data from the CDC uh, are, are concerning. This shows uh, new infections among youth between 13 and 24 years of age in 2014. Uh, by race and ethnicity, these are the males, and these are the females, so many more males. And uh, this age group represents 20% of all new HIV infections. And 80% of the youth diagnosed in 2014 were gay or bisexual males. And the highest incidence was in the African-American population. And there was an 87% increase between 2005 and 2014. But encouragingly, at least it's been stable over the last several years, rather than going up at uh, breakneck speed. And most disturbingly, it's estimated that about 45% of HIV-infected youth are undiagnosed and therefore untreated. And one group that is a particularly high risk is the male-to-female transgender youth. 
Um, this is a study that was done in three cities between 2005 and 6, and they did rapid testing on 600 transgender youth and adults. And they found that there were no positive rapid tests in the female to male transgender use, but 12 uh, population, excuse me, but 12% in the uh, male to female transgenders. And over half of them were in the age range that we're talking about. Uh, this group reported very high risk behaviors, including uh, unprotected receptive anal intercourse, commercial sex work, primarily for survival. Uh, and a third had more than five uh, partners in the prior year. So the drivers of HIV risk in the male to female uh, trans population is stigma and discrimination, lack of social acceptance of their affirmed gender. Many of our uh, trans youth have been uh, kicked out of their homes and don't have any place to live, and they are often excluded from educational and employment opportunities and therefore have to resort to commercial sex work sometimes in order to survive. We're seeing increasing primary uh, ARV resistance in recently diagnosed youth. This was a study done in New York City looking at uh, art-naive youth between 13 and 25 years, recently diagnosed in the last year. And um, of the 331 that were eligible to start art by the criteria at the time, resistance testing was done in about 200 of them, and 18% overall had at least one major drug resistance mutation. But importantly, you saw a big jump in the frequency of, uh, of resistance between 2007 and 9, where overall there was a 12% rate of resistance, which doubled uh, between uh, that time and 2010 and 11. So this is something that uh, just underlines the importance of baseline resistance testing in newly infected youth. And then you've heard a lot about the continuum, and unfortunately, youth do even worse than adults do in maintaining um, uh, retention in, in, in care. So this is, uh, again, data from the CDC. And if you look at the adult population and the youth population of infected individuals, youth being 18 to 24 years in this study, um, a great deal of youth are not diagnosed. And then, as Dr. Bookbinder pointed out, a big drop-off uh, in, even if they're diagnosed, are engaged in care all the way down to only 6% being uh, having a suppressed viral load, which is at least, or at, at least half uh, of what you see in the adult population. So what we really have to do is try to identify barriers at each step of this continuum to find out where we can intervene and engage these young people and target interventions for testing, engagement in care, retention in care is really tricky, uh, provision of adherence support and social support. And then interestingly, uh, this is a study that looked at treatment retention in youth, behaviorally infected youth, that were in pediatric versus adult site uh, clinical care center settings. And this is, a, again, a retrospective study from the HIV Research Network, and they looked at behaviorally infected youth between 12 and 24 years of age, 
and 69% uh, of youth that were eligible to start treatment actually started it, so that's not too bad, but then 29% discontinued it. And it was more common to discontinue it for the youth that were being seen in an adult clinic versus in a pediatric clinic, so twice the rate. And in addition to that, uh, the, the youth that were being seen in a pediatric clinic stayed on their treatment for significantly longer than did the youth that were, that were being seen in the adult clinic. So these young people need a tremendous amount of TLC, and it's different than um, the model of care that's given to most older adults that are a little bit more independent and, and can, can manage their disease a little bit more effectively. So these are some of the ideas that uh, we have in the pediatric population on how to better transition youth into adult care. So on our end, we try to gradually increase the ownership of their personal health status so they know what drugs they're on, what their viral load is, CD4 count, why they're taking drugs, mechanisms of resistance, all of those so that they are better informed about their disease. Uh, we try to have a collaboration between adolescent and adult providers. It's best if the clinics are in the same location so the the youth don't have to negotiate an entirely new building or a new parking facility or a new bus route. Uh, but if that's not possible, it's great if providers can cross-attend clinics so that I'll go to an adult clinic with one of my, my patients, and then the adult provider will come over and uh, make a visit in my clinic so that the youth see that we're working together for their care providing some kind of a patient helper or a navigator to facilitate making and keeping appointments. This is probably the key issue for youth is that they have grown up relying on adults to do the work for them and they really need a lot of help to get them launched to be able to take, take this independently. I've already pointed out how important mental health support is Social workers are critical. A lot of these youth need uh, assistance with housing and food, safety issues. And there needs to be a team approach to adherence, engage the family or peers, consider text messaging reminders, uh, Facebook reminders if they're uh, uh, open to that. All of these things can help keep the youth adherence with, adherent to their care. So in summary, there's been a lot of progress in our field. We have a diminishing number of new perinatally infected infants, yay. Uh, we now recommend treating all children, uh, and we have new drugs coming down the pike as a result of some of the new PK studies and clinical trials that are going on, but we're still behind the adults. And some of the problems are the growing number of behaviorally infected adolescents with uh, black MSM being the highest risk group. And it's very important that we develop strategies to engage and retain adolescents in care. So thank you for your attention. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Are you all prepared for your adolescent uh, kids coming to your clinics? <laughs> or if I scared you to, to death.
All right, so uh, one thing that people are wondering about is your thoughts about breastfeeding in high and low income countries. Same, different? Yes, no? Well, uh, you know, in the old days, we used to try to prohibit women from breastfeeding, and um, it is uh, not, it's clearly not a good idea, both from mortality, morbidity data, and for stigmatization. So there's been a real change in accepting breastfeeding and encouraging breastfeeding in uh, low-resource countries. In high-resource countries where uh, supplemental formula feeding is completely safe, it is still by far the preferred mode, and it is not recommended by the guidelines that breastfeeding be encouraged um, when a safe alternative to breastfeeding is available. Okay, and, and what about data with neurocognitive, neurodevelopmental um, uh, progress in from the, any of the impact or fax cohorts? Yeah, that's, uh, that's concerning. A lot of our youth um, do have neurocognitive issues. Some are subtle, some are more severe. They are clearly uh, much less prevalent than before we had highly active therapy. Um, but it is something that we have to be concerned about in addition to all the other issues that I mentioned in the mental health spectrum. So one of the things you, you pointed out, I think, very well is the uh, impact of having uh, all of the supportive um, features around a pediatric and adolescent clinic. Um, how much of that is at risk as people assume uh, the uh, ACA is taking care of health care and Ryan White can be kind of uh, wound down and uh, HIV can be mainstreamed. Uh, would that affect you if uh, everybody came with fee-for-service care? Um, it's hard to say. One thing I have to say about the ACA is that I used to lose all my adolescents at 18 when they had no coverage. And all of a sudden they were just, they'd gotten all this intensive care throughout their entire life and, and then the rug was pulled out from under them. So the good news is they've got coverage. Um, and so I think that, yes, uh, these are very labor-intensive patients, and I think anything that puts that at risk is problematic. Okay. Any other questions from anybody? All right. Thanks very much, Ellen. Thanks.